you know, how important is truth in nonfiction and how do we define that? And I use James Fry's that controversy and also I think Angel of the Fence is another one about Holocaust survivors um, in which it turned out they fabricated a, a good portion of it. And there's a writer named John Degada who wrote a book about this very issue. And in his book, well, you can you can catch his talk on NPR in which he's reading an essay, a memoir essay, styled essay. And at the same time he's reading it, the NPR, they have a fact checker and they're fact checking the lines of the essay as John DeGaulle is reading it. And he can't get through the essay be essentially because the facts are off, sometimes by a little bit, sometimes by a lot, but like general sense mm -hmm. of truth is there. And the whole idea is that everybody's memory is pretty much infallible. And even in a memoir, you're the difference between a memoir and autobiography is the sense that autobiography has to be more stringently fact-checked, I guess, you know, versus a memoir, which is expected to have a level of that subjectivity. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bookish, where I am joined, as usual, by my colleagues, Professor Laura Yu and Professor Kofi Adiza. Hi, Laura. Hi, Kofi. Hi. Hey, how are you? So today we are talking about memoir, which is kind of, I just realized we don't, we've never actually talked about memoir on this show before, but it is a very popular genre of creative nonfiction. And today we're going to be kind of exploring the genre a bit, talking about some of the more memorable memoirs we have read and some of the features of memoir, because I think people are doing some pretty interesting things with the genre lately. So yeah, that's what we have in store. I'll start off with a question for you guys. What has been your experience with memoir? Like, do you remember studying it or particularly standout memoir that you read? What has been your experience overall with the, the particular genre? I have a, I guess, a special memory of a memoir with a memoir, I guess, is it was Tina Fey's uh, memoir, which now I can't remember the title of it. But I think it was like one of the first memoirs I read more recently. But the memory of it was that I downloaded it on Audible. So remember, we talked in the past episodes about audiobooks and is that reading or not. But I took a train trip to New York by myself and it was like a solo trip. And I remember listening to that book, like on the train and just laughing hysterically by myself. I'm sure other people on the train <laughs> thought I was crazy. It, and it just held a really like special place in my memory of how, of course, how funny the book is, but also the whole experience of the trip and all of that. So since then, I've been listening to a lot of comedians' <laughs> memoirs, and those I will definitely listen to on an audiobook because they read them themselves. And they're really funny, like people like Mindy Kaling, Ali Wong, Issa Rae, all of these really funny especially ladies, I really enjoy listening to their memoirs on like an audiobook. How about you, Kofi? I had to think about that. I mean, I, uh, but <laughs> a good friend of mine, named Simba Sana, wrote a memoir called Never Stop. So I read his memoir. And I know there have been other memoirs I've read. But the one thing I, I would say about the genre of memoir is that it is fixated within a particular time and a particular moment in which some vital thing occurs 
that shapes or challenges the writer's ways of knowing or ways of understanding the world. And I've always found that genre to be interesting, especially when you add the sort of layers of creativity to it, where some memoirs add poetry, some add competing voices. You know, it's, it's not like an autobiography where you're looking at expanse of a person's life. You're looking more at a particular moment or a central moment altered or changed or challenged that person's life. I find that to be engaging and interesting in so many dynamics and in so many ways. And I think for my buddy Simba, it was the loss of his mom. And I think for other people, it's some other kind of moment. It's usually a loss of something or some personal revelation about a thing you didn't know about either your family or about some some background. And I think that that's the thing about the genre that makes it interesting to read because at a certain point, we all have had some kind of experience or some kind of tragedy, but we may not make it as significant to our lives. It may, even if it is, we may not be able to capture it the way that a lot of the memoirists do. And you, Sylvia. <laughs> so I think I, I agree a lot with what you're saying, Kofi. I think memoir for me has always been one of the more accessible ways to get into nonfiction or even like autobiography because it's much more subjective than, say, autobiography is meant to be. But I, I agree that I think the memoir is often rooted in an experience that is the occasion for a whole memoir, which is why I think it's harder for like a not famous person, non-celebrity, to write just like a general memoir recounting their lives unless it's been some kind of an extraordinary life, right, that weren't the reading. So oftentimes I've noticed a trend in which like non-celebrities will write memoir rooted in like an event, a significant event. Oftentimes it's rooted in trauma, I found. But the lighthearted memoirs, I think the comedians, like you're talking about, Laura, like they write their memoirs in a very different way, even though there are like significant moments. In that, I think if we're talking about culturally relevant memoirs right now, definitely Britney Spears, right? The publication of her <laughs> memoir, which was highly anticipated. And I don't know about you, like it is memoir. I think that's why it's very conducive to audiobooks because it's like hearing a story and oftentimes the memoirist will read it, especially if it's a comedian. I was listening to Will Smith's memoir before the slap and it was highly entertaining because it was like hearing Will Smith, you know, entertain you for a while with his like funny storytelling way that he does that. But I think kind of going back to the idea that that memoir is often rooted for non-celebrities in kind of a, a specific experience or a specific moment. I think that's what makes it really accessible for a lot of folks. Even when I was teaching, I found that a lot of students, if they weren't writing fiction, the genre they were most interested in writing and exploring was memoir. And I'd ask them, well, why? What are you trying to write about that is significant for you? And they said, well, I just lived an interesting life and I think people should, would want to read it. But like, what is <laughs> interesting overall that would make people want to read about your life? Because I think a lot of people might think their lives are interesting, but is there some kind of an event or something that has happened that people might want to explore with you? And so I think memoir can be really engaging and accessible, but I also think it can be really tricky too, because... It's the one genre that can be most navel-gazing. Like you're just talking about yourself and if you don't have a reason for that, it's very difficult. And I think you can see that in some of the published memoirs that are out there. 
versus others. And so I think one of the memoirs we're, we're talking about today, Nadia Owusu's Aftershocks, which was part of my summer reading, there it is. That's an example to me of a memoir that plays with the form or the genre of memoir because she's like interweaving cultural history almost into the memoir. Otherwise, because I was thinking like, why is she, why does she write it this way? It's very poetic. And I realized if she didn't weave into her narrative these sort of cultural moments that Kofi, to your point, that makes her look at life and herself and her position within like the larger historical timeline a little bit differently and how her perception has shifted and what she thought it was. I think it could be really self-involved. It could be really navel-gazing if she hadn't included that. You know, it's like boiled down to it, it would be like, okay, your dad kept a pretty significant secret. Welcome to the club of many people's dads who live lives <laughs> But the fact that it is such a significant thing embedded into culturally significant time, I think is is really kind of what set this memoir apart and kind of an example of what I was talking about. That's a long-winded answer, but Kofi, you look like you have something to say. What are you? Yeah, that that was one of the things I I found interesting because I I kind of felt like this was almost like an an autoethnography in that there was this blending of cultural and social and political histories that shaped her identity in a way that the sort of the tragic death or just call it the death of her father, I liked how you said occasion this sort of deep introspective because you get this history of not just one particular culture, but because she traveled around, she was born in Tanzania, you get that cultural history. She's Ghanaian, you get, or she's partly Ghanaian, you get that cultural history. You get her Americanness when she's in New York, that cultural history. And she weaves it, not necessarily in a chronological order, but it's almost like in an order of her identity formation. And so a lot of the things that I found interesting about the, the not, first of all, there are some beautiful sentences in the book, but the, it's the, the sort of that blending of history and culture and the politics of it. And when she talks about Hakuta Matata and how that became kind of commercialized, and then she talks about what Tanzania was and how it became these different things, how it celebrated Muslim religion, Hindu religion. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly but surely talks about homosexuality, mm-hmm. and but it was still like a sin in the certain, you would get I think something like 30 days in jail or something like that. So there were these moments that you get this real sense of not just the place and the people, but it's it's history and the shape of that identity. And I thought that was a really artful way of creating a memoir. But again, it felt very autoethnographic in a way to me. Mm-hmm. But I'm also teaching autoethnographies, so maybe I'm biased. Kofi, there's actually, there's definitely that element, and I kept thinking about that physical object that like you have your students maybe look at, and in this memoir, you could say the blue chair, right? It like works that way, where she's literally sitting in that chair for days and experiencing what seems like a breakdown or a nervous breakdown or something. And so we had a faculty development, like a book talk about aftershocks just last week. And it was a small group, but we realized that this is actually a really good 
book for like a campus book, right? Because as you all talked about, it is so relevant in terms of you could bring it into a history class, you could bring it into a psychology class to talk about, you know, representation of mental illness, sociology. Um, and of course, for us English majors, there's so many literary references in the book too, about her reading habits and the authors that she and books that she admired all woven in there. So it was a really good talk. And I think it was a really good talk with people from different disciplines because the memoir included so many different elements and themes, right? So there is something in the book, if you can't relate, let's say, as a reader to the specific trauma of her father's death or mental illness, there's something for the reader to take away from. And honestly, just aside from her life, I learned so much. <laughs> Mostly I learned how little I knew about mm -hmm. politics and the history that, you know, particularly in Africa, different countries in Africa that she talked about. So yeah, I, you know, I guess I usually read memoirs by famous people, especially the funny ones. And this is one of the ones that are not famous <laughs> celebrity, but really like got a lot out of reading it. Well, I was going to just say that I, I, I sort of felt like, I don't want to say it was like a quick read, but I felt like I was a little hesitant to read it because I kind of felt like, oh, I think I know what this story is all about. It's kind of like your traditional kind of immigrant story where the person kind of comes of age and goes through some hardships, but comes out on the other side. Not necessarily unscathed, but a little bit wiser and a little bit light. But I think it was way more technical than that. And it was much more creative than that. And I think that I could see, Laura, that the book can touch varying audiences in various disciplines on a college campus. So in that regard, I think it was probably better than some of the other memoirs from famous people because most of the navel gazing. Yeah. Well, um, I want to follow that thread a little bit, the idea of the technical element of a memoir, because I think one of the misconceptions, you know, some audiences might have about the memoir is that it's easy. It's an easy form to write and it's an easy thing to, to accomplish, right? compared to a formal essay or, you know, research nonfiction. And that's not true <laughs> because as to your point, Kofi, then, you know, some of these other memoirs can easily devolve into sort of like solipsism where you're just like talking to yourself really. And so curious, like at what, what you said, Laura, about the blue chair kind of reminded me a little bit of this, that one feature of a memoir that I remember was discussed in a talk by, I think it was like Nadine Gordimer or something like that when I was in grad school. And she talked about some of the technical features of, of memoir writing. And one of them obviously is you have to have a good memory. <laughs> but the second piece is that I picked up was the idea of a token, right? So some memoirs you'll see one of the technical elements is a token that the writer is using that's oftentimes a physical object that is taking you into the memory itself. And so I think Probably the most famous one is Proust, right? When he talks about eating this madeleine, this little, you know, those little cookies, and how the sensation of eating the madeleine kind of transports him back to this time, you know, in his memory. And even with Nadia Lucy, what you're talking about, Laura, the, the blue chair, right? It's these tokens that represent something almost like the, the key or the entry point into what has happened for the memoirist. And I was trying to think of some other tokens, I think in Nabokov's memory, I mean, Speak Memory, his, his memoir, I remember one of the tokens he uses is a match, a lighting of a match, and how these different objects kind of take us to different places. I think there's another one too, and I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, 
you know, the movie Ratatouille. That's not a memoir, but, but uh, I was reminded that in reference to Christian Madeline when, you know, you know exactly, you knew exactly the scene I was talking about when I even mentioned the title, right? When he eats the, the Ratatouille, and boom, he's like taken back in time. Um, yeah. So that is one element that is often employed in, in a memoir to give the audience a sense of place and grounding and <laughs> entry point into the past along with the person. Instead of saying things like, hey, once when I was a kid, you know, I ran into this person who... I, w- I was just thinking of the one that was recently was really popular, Crying in H Mart. And it is <clears> that <throat> moment, literally, and the whole memoir is very much about food, right? So she talks about growing up, I guess she's mixed Korean, right? Half Korean. Mm-hmm. And uh, her, I think her mother is ill and her mother passes, but not to give it away, <laughs> but it's a moment that's the blue chair moment in this mm-hmm. book where she goes to H Mart by herself to buy food, Korean food. And it of course reminds her of her mother and her relationship with her mother. And so then the whole book is so much about food. And so there is that general sort of token of food, but that specific moment that triggers, right? That the some specific aisle in, in H Mart and this idea of like she broke down and cried in the middle of H Mart. It becomes that significant central moment. I think it was the seaweed aisle that she was in or something for some reason. I feel like yeah, yeah. Kofi looks confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I didn't read it. So there's that. I have nothing to say. But I do think that, that the point that you made, Sylvia, earlier about the difficulty of it and maybe even some of the flaws about memoir is basically in memory, that human memory is by nature faulty and it's, it's flawed. And so the, some, you know there has to be some level of research. There has to be some level of digging. You have to go back and look for things to sort of situate that memory within a bigger construction or bigger construct. And so I think that that is a challenge often for any writer, really, that when you are setting out to create something, the amount of research that you may need to make, the choices in that research that you're making are essential to your whole narrative, if you will. So we will never, it's not, it's not fair to assume that she knew all the history of Tanzania from age zero to what I think she says, six or something like that's something she had to research. Right. So same with Kwame Nkrumah, there's certain things she probably had to research, but the way it is stylized, the way it's woven, that is the true technical ability that not everybody can pull off. They, they just can't. Yeah. It's really hard to make research that interesting <laughs> and then to have it in a narrative kind of way and to keep the voice, to keep the poetic tones, undertones to it and not drift into sort of these kind of technocratic ways of talking about dates, death dates, histories, tragedies, listing things out, but making it part of her identity as it is in in sort of a sort of blended identities. I just found that that part of the memoir was really, really strong. And yeah, I think it's amazingly written. I didn't go in thinking that way. So I'm always pleasantly surprised when I come (laughs) up, hey, this is really damn good. (laughs) What do we think about this question about 
truthfulness. We know memory, nobody's memory is that detailed, right? So there is, to a certain extent, we have to fill in the gaps, the specific details, the exact words that were said or other sensory details. But, and I also, you know, there have been some memoirs that have been in controversial because later it was like proven that it was all made up or something like that. I remember spe- specifically one of the like Oprah's books called a million little pieces or something. And it was about, yeah. And it was about addiction, I think. And later it turned out that like he had made up like so much of it. And so many of the events had never happened. So, but, you know, aside from that, obviously if it's made up, it's made up, but in a book like Aftershocks, for example, or Crying in HMR, like what what do we think about the, the spectrum, the degree of truthfulness? So I'm so glad you asked this question because I this used to be a standard unit in my creative writing class when we talked about nonfiction. One of the first things I would assign them is this whole unit on, you know, how important is truth in nonfiction and how do we define that? And I use James Fry's that controversy and also I think Angel of the Fence is another one about Holocaust survivors um, in which it turned out they fabricated a, a good portion of it. And there's a writer named John Degada who wrote a book about this very issue. And in his book, well, you can you can catch his talk on NPR in which he's reading an essay, a memoir essay, styled essay. And at the same time he's reading it, the NPR, they have a fact checker and they're fact checking the lines of the essay as John DeGuard is reading it. And he can't get through the essay be- essentially because the facts are off, sometimes by a little bit, sometimes by a lot, but like general sense mm-hmm. of truth is there. And the whole idea is that everybody's memory is pretty much infallible. And even in a memoir, you're ex- the difference between a memoir and autobiography is the sense that autobiography has to be more stringently fact-checked, I guess, you know, versus a memoir, which is expected to have a level of that subjectivity involved in it. Mm-hmm. And But every time I ask students this question, they are very polarized. Some are saying, you know, it's absolutely not a memoir or not nonfiction if there's a single shred of you know, embellishment. And other people are saying, well, it's called creative nonfiction because in order to get to what Kofi was mentioning before, like this beautiful story kind of expertly woven, the writer has to to do some sort of creative writing, you know, <laughs> bringing the poetics of the language, imagery, things like that. So it might not be perfectly in line with how the event actually happened, but the general sort of truth of it is what is the truth of the story? What is the truth that the larger truth with a capital T that we're trying to get to? And Nadia, for, for the, our listeners, Nadia Owusu, the, the one who wrote Aftershocks that we're talking about, she actually came and gave a lecture here on campus in September. And she kind of spoke a little bit to the idea that when you're crafting a memoir like this, you really have to find and discover the common thread, the theme that you are trying to explicate for yourself, right? You're trying to untangle it amongst all of these different narrative episodes and memories that are happening in your mind. And you're trying to figure out like, why these memories? What is it that I'm drawn to in these memories? And how do I get to the core truth with a capital T, the core of it? And then kind of taking that and staying true to that to a certain degree, like there's ethics involved too, right? A responsible memoirist ought to be doing their research and not crossing the line, but where is the line? Student, the students I talk with seem very uncomfortable <laughs> with that idea, you know, that some of it might be made up. Other students were like, as long as the central truth is there, I'm good, you know, I'm like good with it. It's a really, it's a controversial topic, this idea of how yeah. far is too far in taking creative liberties. 
Yeah, and I'll be quick with my somewhat answer to that question. I actually don't know if I look for truth in any kind of fiction or nonfiction or creative nonfiction. I think I look for the story and how I interact with that story, how that story elicits certain types of emotions, or am I really trying to discover some meaning to this particular person who I probably will never meet? I don't know if that's what I do when I read a nonfiction or creative nonfiction. I think I'm trying to see the story and understand it. And based on what it is in that story or in that narrative, in that structure, whatever truth is, it is at that moment as a reader that I either accept it or I reject it. And there could be memoirs that are really powerful, but if the story is not something I can really truly relate to, not something I truly believe in. I never read A Million Little Pieces, but when I heard how it was constructed, I kind of thought, why did people believe that in the first place? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wonder if we're, if sometimes we want something to be 100% accurate, which seems to be an unfair request of a writer that mm. you have to be 100% accurate on things when nobody is 100% accurate. On exactly. And so you, you have to experience the, the book for what it does. And maybe it does speak to a truth of some sort, but whatever that is, we'll never really truly know um, <laughs> unless we have those similar experiences. Right. But that's my right. philosophical answer. <laughs> well, I think that takes us to the end of this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening in, tuning in. You can listen to us on bookishacasualbookclub.podbean.com or really any app anywhere you listen to podcasts in general. And you can, you know, listen to our older episodes as well. So I hope you'll join us next time. Bye, everybody. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.